Welcome back. You're listening to Jason Lee Willis's Examining Christmas. In episode one, we took a look at that infamous genealogy list. And today, we're going to take a look at what to expect when you're expecting the Christ. Jesus Christ did not have a father named Joseph Christ. Christ is not a last name. While some Christians might think Jesus Christ is a full proper name, the word Christ is actually a title. The word translation gets a little messy, but essentially Christ means the Anointed One, or the Messiah. So Jesus Christ really needs an article to become Jesus the Christ. After the crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus is referred to as Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus much more often. Even after 2,000 years, explaining the purpose of the Christ is quite complicated at times. So it is really hard to imagine what the innkeeper, the shepherds, or even the magi would have expected from the Christ. So if you want to jump right into the Christmas story, you still might want to jump right to chapter 9, but you'd be missing a lot of really nerdy stuff. The Christ did not come out of the blue. People in the first century expected a Christ, even if they didn't quite know what to expect. Want an example? Read a little of John 4. In this chapter, you will read about a Samaritan woman who meets Jesus at a well. In case you don't know, Samaritans were not respected by the Jews, and this woman probably held even less respect. Yet, after a fairly deep philosophical conversation about salvation, the woman says to Jesus, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. That's from John 4.25. This Samaritan woman is trashy, probably uneducated, possibly a pagan, see mountain worship references, and definitely born on the wrong side of the tracks. But even she knew a Messiah, or Christ, was coming to set things straight. She expected it. Another example of expecting the Christ can be seen with Simon the Rock. (laughs) Kind of sounds like a wrestler, but I'll stick with Peter. In Mark chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus asks Peter who he is. Peter answers with, Thou art the Christ. Peter had several swing and miss moments, but this time he hit a home run. But Peter had a good idea that Jesus was the Christ long before his this public confession. If you look at John chapter 1, verse 42, you will see how Peter had already been looking for the Christ. His brother Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist when Jesus showed up to be baptized. When that scene concludes, Andrew goes running off to find his brother Simon, or Peter, saying, We have found the Messiah, which is translated as Christ. There are all sorts of ways to interpret Andrew's meaning. Remember, this is 30 years after a dozen or more figures all witnessed the birth of the Christ, only to have Jesus disappear. Mary and Joseph took Jesus to Egypt, remember? It is possible that by the time they returned to Nazareth, they could hide his divine identity from their neighbors. There were no miracles until after the baptism. How frustrating would it be to be the Magi, shepherds, Anna, Simeon, or even Herod, and know Jesus is out there somewhere, 
but not know which infant, child, young adult, or 30-year-old man it really was. Another possibility is that John the Baptist talked about the coming Christ. With this possibility, Andrew certainly would have written home to his family that his mentor openly predicted the coming of the Christ, just as Elijah promised to return before the coming of the Christ. Peter undoubtedly told his brothers something to this effect. Hey, if the Christ does show up, come and get me. Or, Peter and Andrew were two devout Jews who simply knew their scriptures. And in the harsh environment of Roman rule, they simply prayed for a deliverer. Upon hearing the voice of God and the Holy Spirit descending like a dove, Andrew knew the Christ had come. Peter expected it. But what exactly did they expect? In hindsight, it is easy to roll your eyes at the disciples and followers for not quite getting what was happening in front of them. Again and again, we see foot-in-mouth moments, often with Peter, that show how they struggled with the concept of the Christ. Even 2,000 years later, Christianity is divided into a hundred factions that have varying interpretations on how to view the Christ or what his complex purpose had been. Buried in the Old Testament are dozens of Christ prophecies that seem like it should have been painfully obvious to any Pharisee or Sadducee that Jesus was the Christ. Many Christians struggle with the idea that modern Jews can't recognize all the signs in their own texts. But even John, who trained with both the Baptist and the Christ, didn't catch all the details. Do you remember John at the open tomb? For as yet they knew not the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Remember, it was on the road to Emmaus that an undercover Jesus had to reveal the meaning of the scriptures. Quote, Then he opened their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. That's from Luke 24, 45. So if someone living in the time and very presence of Jesus misses a few details, who are we to judge? But in the beginning of Genesis, all the way through the book of Malachi, the cumulative details about the Christ created a collection of dots that, when connected, created a pretty clear representation of the Christ. So, let's review. Clue number one, the seed of a woman. In Genesis 3.15, we see one of the earliest references to the Christ with the punishment slash prophecy. Remember that Satan, Adam, and Eve are all getting punished here, but hidden in Eve's punishment is that Eve's offspring will bring damage to Satan, the bruised head, and that Satan, in return, will bring damage to her offspring, the bruised heel. If you were an angry Satan, now you are even more upset. But for Adam and Eve, this is their darkest hour to date, in which they will be cast out of the garden and out of the presence of God, all because of Satan. After the depression of their fallen state wore off, they undoubtedly would see a little hope and revenge in this veiled prophecy. 
This clue is confirmed with Galatians 4.4. Clue number two, uh, the descendant of Abraham. For generations, the cast of candidates exploded, then greatly narrowed, Noah's Ark, and then quickly began to bloom again. Around the time of Nimrod, the Tower of Babel, and the division of Peleg, God looked out at all of his candidates and chose Abram. While Genesis 12.3 isn't super specific about Jesus or the Christ, it effectively picks Abraham as the bloodline, putting the two sons of Abraham, Ishmael and Isaac, on Satan's most wanted and most persecuted list. Matthew 1.1 confirms this clue. Clue number three, a descendant of Isaac. We learned from the scarlet thread that the firstborn son concept is not one that God follows exclusively. Genesis 17.19 clarifies that while Ishmael's descendants will be many, it will be Isaac through which the covenant will flow. So the Hebrews become God's chosen people. With this pat on the head proclamation, Satan unleashes his full arsenal on the Hebrews, just like we saw when God praised Job. The chosen people are subsequently tempted and tormented, with many turning to evil. Yet the promise had been made, and as Luke noted in 334, it was through this line that we were given Jesus. Clue number four, a descendant of Jacob. Once again, the scarlet thread does not weave its way through the firstborn son. Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob, but only one was to receive the covenant. Genesis 25 verse 29 begins the story of how Jacob kind of steals his birthright away from his older brother Esau, who despised it. But it was actually a foreign sorcerer who really makes this switch to Jacob more obvious. In Numbers 24:17, Balaam, the sorcerer, lets all the bad guys know that they are powerless from stopping God's plans. Balaam says, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab, and destroy all the children of Sheth. While this prophecy certainly had short time implications, it also hearkens to the second coming of Christ. Matthew 1-2 and 2-2 also confirm Jesus as a descendant of Jacob, as well as connecting to the star of the Magi. Clue number five, the tribe of Judah. For many modern Christians, the word Hebrew is synonymous with the word Jew. Uh, especially if you are bored with the books of Kings and Chronicles. The cast of candidates grew vast again after Jacob, who had 12 sons. Would the Christ come through his firstborn son, Reuben? Nope. Uh, how about Jacob's two favorites, Joseph and Benjamin? Nope and double nope. Then obviously it would be through the priestly line, the Levites. Not quite. It was through Judah, the fourthborn that the Christ shall come. From Genesis 49, verse 8, Judah, 
Thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, and as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Again, as a short-term prophecy, the two southern tribes survived all sorts of conquest and genocide from their enemies. But as a long-term prophecy, you can see hints of the Battle of Armageddon, the Valley of Dry Bones, the Millennial Kingdom, and Judgment Day in this final prophecy from Jacob. The scepter is again mentioned, which really begins to shape the Christ as a king and lawgiver. Clue number six, heir to the throne of David. Now, by the time of Mary and Joseph, the throne had been vacant for hundreds of years since Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the kingdom. While the Hasmoneans brought back Jewish leadership, Israel was ruled by a foreigner by the name of Herod, leaving the people to wonder who legally is the blood heir of David. Isaiah chapter 9 verses 6 and 7 certainly give these leaderless people some hope that a child would be born to restore David's throne and deliver an eternal kingdom. The problem is that King David had a lot of legitimate and illegitimate heirs. 19 are named in the Bible. So good luck tracking them down nearly six centuries later. You can see why Matthew and Luke would have been confused as to which list to use when both seemed to connect the scarlet thread to Jesus. Clue number seven, born in Bethlehem. Okay, now we're talking. That is at least a little more specific, which is why Herod, and probably Satan, had it on the radar. We know clue number seven was commonly known because Herod's guys expected this as a certainty. When the Magi showed up in Jerusalem, Herod probably thought, are you sure you don't want to check Bethlehem? Herod expected the Magi to do his dirty work of specifically identifying which baby was the Christ. I guess thank goodness for the little angelic detour. His reason for doing this was a few passages from Micah. Chapter 5, verse 2. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, thou shalt be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is, to be a ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from old, from everlasting. Micah goes on to talk about how the Christ shall be both a shepherd as well as a warrior who shall witness the gathering of the remnant. It is no wonder Herod was frightened by the idea of the Christ. Clue number eight born of a virgin. Scoffers love to mock the virgin birth as a scientific impossibility, and this chapter is not going to get into the science of Mary. But Luke, who was a physician, probably had a good understanding of basic reproductive science. It is the doctor 
not a shepherd or fisherman, who laid it on the line with the virgin birth. Why? The concept of a God-made flesh is a bit surreal unto itself and harkens back to the Greek myths and maidens being impregnated by Zeus. Yet Luke the researcher must have dug up the truth after talking to Mary or others and insisted in sharing this story in his Gospels. After all, it does fulfill Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse evil and choose the good. Of the 20 translations of this verse I read, 19 wrote virgin. The version that used young woman was the Tanka, the Hebrew Bible used by modern Jews. Even if you were to go with this watered-down version, after all, what is miraculous about a young woman giving birth, the prophecy still let them know that the Christ would be born rather than descending on a beam of light. It even added a little detail that the Christ would have the classic tree of knowledge test involving good and evil. This verse insinuates there would be more at stake even after the birth. Clue number nine, slaughter of the infants. Jeremiah chapter 31 also mentioned a virgin as well as others who would be filled with joy but the tone dramatically changes by verse 15. Thus saith the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children because they were not. The Rachel being talked about is the beloved wife of Jacob. Her tomb is currently a tourist stop in Bethlehem. So any Pharisee, that dug up the prophecy about being born in Bethlehem also knew the coming of the Christ would be bittersweet. Clue number 10, growing up. There are certainly many more clues about the Christ than just 10, but many of the others deal with his life and death, not his birth and origins. King Herod and all of his men were pretty certain about the Bethlehem birth, yet in hindsight, we know that Jesus wasn't really from Bethlehem. Mary and Joseph both seem to be from Nazareth. Go to Bethlehem for the birth, and then, well, Hosea chapter 11, 1 seems to come out of left field to answer that question. It says, when Israel was a child, then I loved him, and called my son out of Egypt. What happened? Mary and Joseph fled Herod's wrath and stayed in Egypt. After Herod's death, Jesus was called out of Egypt. There is another obscure prophecy that Matthew mentions. In Matthew 2:23, he writes about the exile in Egypt, quote, And he, Joseph, came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, quote, he shall be called a Nazarene, unquote. 
But what the heck is Matthew talking about? For centuries, scholars have been clueless about the source of Matthew's prophecy. Without knowing the source, they have twisted this verse in a variety of directions. Regardless, Matthew had a popular saying, lost to us now, that the Christ would be called a Nazarene. Matthew's assumption was that this had something to do with Nazareth. So by looking at those top 10 clues, you can begin to understand what a first century believer might have expected. But this is just the tip of the iceberg. The Book of Psalms, for example, has dozens of little references. By themselves, none of them are super obvious. But when you put them all together in a list, which is what I'll do in just a few moments, uh, it is pretty impressive. While some of the previously mentioned prophecies were known and mentioned, these buried prophecies were probably only understood after the Holy Spirit came and enlightened the believers. I'm going to give you the verse and a very simplistic paraphrase of each. Psalm 2-7, the Christ will be the Son of God. Psalm 8-2, the Christ will be praised by children. Psalm 8-6, the Christ will be ruler of all. Psalm 16.10, the Christ will rise from the dead. Psalm 16.10, the Christ is the only way to avoid shale. Psalm 22.1, the Christ will be crucified. Psalm 22.7, the Christ will be derided. Psalm 22.16, the Christ will have his hands and feet pierced. Psalm 22.18, this is a good psalm, uh, Christ's clothes will be divided. Psalm 34.20, Christ's bones will be unbroken. Psalm 34, I'm sorry, 3511, the Christ will be unfairly tried and convicted. Also in Psalm 35, verse 19, the Christ will be hated without cause. Psalm 40, verse 7, the Christ will delight in God's will. Psalm 41, 9, the Christ will be betrayed by a friend. That'd be Judas. Psalm 68, 18, the Christ will ascend to heaven. Psalm 69.9, the Christ will have zeal. Psalm 69.21, the Christ will be given vinegar and gall. Psalm 109.4, the Christ will pray for his enemies. Psalm 109.8, Christ's betrayer will be replaced. That'd be Judas again. Psalm 110.1, the Christ will rule over enemies. Psalm 110 verse 4, the Christ will be a priest forever. Psalm 118.22, the Christ will be a chief stone. And the last one, Psalm 118.26, the Christ will come in the name of the Lord. Wow, what a list, huh? So if you were a Pharisee or shepherd with a keen interest in Christ, there were all sorts of prophecies to sort through. For us, we can specifically see which of these happened during his time on earth, and which are still going to happen during his second coming. But for first-generation followers, it is no wonder they expected Jesus to defeat the Romans and take the throne of David for himself. It would have been very difficult to reconcile Psalm 110.4 with Psalm 22.16. There is also a thought amongst theologians that the Christ made all sorts of cameo appearances during the Old Testament. Who visited Moses in his tent? In other words, you have two choices. 
the Christ stayed in a very special place during the Old Testament era, or he was a spiritual being capable of visiting Earth. It does explain what the prophets would see when they claimed to see God. Because of this, the angel of the Lord references are often viewed as Christ appearances. Perhaps one of the strangest Christ predictions can be found in the book of Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament. One of the reasons why this book was placed at the end was because of its very specific prediction about the coming of the Christ. 2,000 years after the birth of the Christ, we have a better understanding of the two phrases of the Christ, with the second phrase happening in the book of Revelation. But to a first century believer, Malachi sounded a little end timesy. In a nutshell, this prophecy says that before the Christ arrives, God will send Elijah back to the Hebrews to prepare the way. In preparing the way, Malachi chapters 3 and 4 drop phrases like refiner's fire and purify along with turn their hearts lest I come and strike the earth. <laughs> so Elijah was supposed to make sure the boss doesn't get angry and throw a fit when he arrives. Many people now believe these verses in Malachi are end times predictions and as a result they often feel Elijah is obviously going to be one of the two witnesses described in Revelation. Possibly. Remember the last time we saw Elijah? That's right, he was going off to heaven on a fiery chariot. Hard to forget that. Jesus' disciples certainly didn't forget this vivid description, and once they realized Jesus was the Christ, they were really confused by the Malachi prophecy. In Matthew chapter 17, 10, one of the disciples asks, Why then say scribes that Elias, or Elijah, must come first? For now, I'm going to leave the question unanswered until episode 7. But it is a cool reminder how the disciples had clear and obvious expectations of the Christ prior to his arrival. Now this last section is going to get a little weird because Revelation 12 is a little weird. For the past 2000 years, the entire book of Revelation has been giving Christians fits. And first century Jews all shout out, ha! Just like we had prophecies of the coming Christ, the book of Revelation is a preview of the end times. We get angels, antichrists, and all sorts of wild imagery to sort through. Some see the whole book as hyperbolic metaphors of events that happened in the first century, and others see it as literal clues that will happen during the final seven years of our world. I've read dozens upon dozens of interpretations of these poetic chapters and verses, and one of the most nebulous sections is that darn chapter 12. So go ahead and reference your Bible now. To paraphrase, we see a woman that gives birth. Then we see a dragon try to kill her and her baby. Then we see a war break out between good angels and bad angels. Then there is a loud speech. Then more running and chasing. Then the dragon develops some digestive issues. Finally, it ends with the equivalent of the dragon saying, I'll be back. And cue chapter 13. Huh? 
Even the simplified paraphrase is confusing, isn't it? This chapter bothered me for a long time because it had so many possibilities, especially the beginning and ending sections. But let's look at the context of what was happening to John and the book of Revelation before we start splitting this prophecy apart. So far, John was sitting on the island of Patmos when he gets a bunch of messages for the seven churches. It's chapters one through three. In chapters four and five, he sees a vision of heaven in which Jesus proves himself to be worthy and is given a scroll to open. Beginning with chapter six, Jesus begins to open each seal one at a time and all sorts of weird and wild stuff happens to humanity. Once the scroll is fully opened, it seems as if we are in the last days of the end times. Chapter 8 begins the seven trumpet section that seems to be reminiscent of the ten plagues of Egypt. After these seven trumpets, and before the seven bowls of wrath, we get chapter 12. Why? So far, all these prophecies were about humanity. The last section of Revelation is about Satan, the Antichrist, and company, death in Hades, and the armies of evil. Epic stuff. Why show Satan and the gang getting punished? If you are a human, who cares? Well, the evil ones have a backstory, don't they? I believe Revelation 12 is a fuller explanation than we get in Genesis, which was totally Adam and Eve's perspective. In order to understand the punishment, we first need to understand the crime. Revelation 12 is not prophecy, it's a flashback. While the whole prophecy is a bit messy to decipher, there is one section that seems clear to me. Chapter 12.9 says, And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent, called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast to the ground, and his angels were cast out with him. This is verse 9 of 17. It is right in the middle of the prophecy about the woman, birth, war, speech, and revenge. Now, take a look at something Jesus said during his time on earth. Luke chapter 10 verse 18 is the story about how Jesus sent out his gang of disciples and how they were blown away by the authority they had over agents of evil like demons. Now, I'm not sure if Jesus would roll his eyes when they said, Lord, even the demons were subject to us in your name. But he does sound a little snarky with his response. And he said to them, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall be by any means hurt you. Notwithstanding in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. This kernel of information in this passage is Jesus referencing that he was there when Satan fell from heaven. Past tense. Flashback. Another interesting reference from Jesus can be found in John 8.44. You are of your father the devil. And the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in truth, because there is no truth in him. Murderer from the beginning? Having read Genesis, I do not remember 
any mention of a reference to um, murder in the tree of knowledge scene. What is Jesus talking about? Well, there is another cryptic reference given by Jesus in Matthew eleven twelve, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. Now, as with most prophecies, uh, there can be dual meanings. So I do not entirely limit chapter 12 to only flashback. But let's just explore it as a flashback and explanation of what happened around the time Adam and Eve were walking around, walking out of the garden. Before we can do that, let's talk about the origins of Jesus for a moment. The verses we just discussed show Jesus referencing the fact that he's been around since the beginning, right? I was there when. The book of John opens with a very poetic explanation that Jesus equals word, word equals God, God equals beginning, by saying, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The early church grappled with this concept until they hammered out the Nicene Creed. They struggled with the idea of Jesus, God, and the Holy Spirit as separate entities. It's almost more than a human can reckon, huh? I think John did a nice job explaining it in the above paragraph, even though I'm not quite sure what that means. Genesis uses the plural Elohim along with a reference in 3.22 that says, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us. Us. Plural. Yet the early Christians struggled with the finer details of the Trinity. It doesn't matter one iota. Actually, it did. The phrase actually comes from the Council of Nicaea. As they hammered out the Nicene Creed, they debated the wording of it. Uh, some felt that Jesus was of similar substance, while others believed Jesus was of the same substance as God. The Greek spelling of those two phrases were only different because of the letter iota. In the end, the Council of Nicaea determined that Jesus was of the same substance as God leaving most of Christendom to scratch their heads and shrug. Imagine a really big ball of clay, like a five-gallon bucket size. The ball of clay is the Trinity. In the beginning, Elohim. The ball of clay is God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. So now, along with the ball of clay, we create the universe. Picture a coffee cup. Uh, yes, I am recording this on a Sunday morning. Despite being really big, the universe is still smaller than our ball of clay. In fact, picture that big five-gallon ball of clay wrapping itself entirely around the coffee cup. Let there be light. A lot of people imagine day one of creation from our human point of view. We picture a sunrise, right? Or a solar system view of the sun peering around the moon to illuminate a blue globe, right? Hold on a second. 
what happened on day four. Genesis 1.14 says, And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of God to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, and the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth, and to rule over the day and over the night, and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Um, let there be light again. So on day four, God created the sun, the moon, and the stars. This light is what gave us seasons. This light is what lets us see stuff in the dark. This light helps us tell time. So what happened in day one? Genesis 1-3 reads, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, and it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. But if it wasn't the sun... Let's go back to the big five-gallon ball of clay. Elohim, the big ball of clay, creates the empty universe, the coffee cup. But Elohim existed before the coffee cup. Elohim cannot fit inside of the coffee cup. Elohim exists outside of the coffee cup. Elohim surrounds the coffee cup. Yet Elohim also wants to fill the coffee cup, which is filled with darkness. Let there be light. Let there be light. Picture the Holy Spirit for a moment. Pentecost. Tongues of fire. The baptism of Jesus descending like a dove. The Holy Spirit is very abstract. It fills us. It is part of Elohim and thus has existed since the beginning along with God and Jesus. It comes, it goes, it fills, it surrounds. It exists inside of our universe? Duh. Ah, let there be light. Picture the big ball of clay and the coffee cup. Could it be that on day one, God's substance enters into the universe in tangible form? The creative force, the hand of God, slips into the space of the coffee cup bringing light. Is the clay inside the coffee cup different from the clay outside the coffee cup? Nope. Does it have a different purpose than the clay outside of the coffee cup? Um, I don't think so. Without the Holy Spirit, the coffee cup is filled with darkness. It is black coffee with no creamer. Okay, I'll stop with the analogy. Sorry. Uh, the coffee cup is not the clay. It is darkness. By putting light, or the Holy Spirit, his substance, into the coffee cup, the appearance of God has changed even though it is the same exact clay. It is the clay the universe can see. What about the clay outside of the universe? John says some very profound, something very profound a few verses after explaining the Word, Jesus, and God. He says in verse 18, no man hath seen God at any time. 
Well, what about Moses and Mount Horeb? According to John, no one. If God exists outside of his creation, how can anyone in his creation see outside of creation? Oh, so what did all of those people in the Old Testament who existed only inside of the coffee cup of our universe actually see when they claimed to see God? What gave Moses a sunburn? What did Jacob see in that wrestling match? On day one, I believe the hand of God made an appearance in the coffee cup of our universe. God is good. God is light. The light that illuminated our universe was not physical light. That came on day four. It was spiritual light. Why do we call the aspect of God? The Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit any different from God? Yes. Yes. No. No. <laughs> well, John did his best to explain it. Uh, word equals Jesus. Jesus equals light. Light equals God. God equals word. Keep reading those opening verses. It goes round and round and round. Contrasted, all, contrasted against all of this is the darkness. Remember how Jesus referenced being around at the beginning? Jesus was there with God, wasn't he? In the same way, the Holy Spirit is the same substance as God. The Holy Spirit is the same clay as God. Does your coffee cup have an opening? Sure does, right? Our five gallons of clay totally surrounds the coffee cup, and it enters into the coffee cup through the opening, heaven. Through this window of heaven, God's creative hand forms everything on day two, three, four, Okay, now we really have a son. Uh, day five, day six. Hey, look, Adam. Uh, now, at this point, Adam sees God. But what does he see exactly? Can Adam see outside of the coffee cup? Nope. Can he see his creator? Yep. In fact, he walks with Elohim. Is Adam walking with the same substance that exists outside of the coffee cup? I think so. For Adam and all of us since... We have rationalized this different form of God as the Holy Spirit. God equals Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit equals Jesus. Jesus equals God. The Trinity is some pretty abstract stuff. So let's get back to the subject of this chapter, the Christ. This next part is a flawed analogy to make a point, so uh, bear with me. Picture Adam and Eve in the garden. They're animals. I picture a platypus swimming in the Gihon River. There are some pretty cool trees. Even Satan is still behaving. Hey, Lucifer. It is good. During this walk with God, the light, the Holy Spirit, do you picture Jesus sitting on a rock? Hey, God, Adam asks. I'm pretty much the most perfect human ever made, so I have a high capacity for abstract thinking and analogies, but who is that? At this point, picture the Wizard of Oz. Oh, him? Uh, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Uh, we'll get to him later. Adam is now curious. In fact, he is more curious about the mystery man than he is curious about the Tree of Knowledge. But why is he here? What's his purpose? Is he supposed to be my fishing buddy? God is getting impatient. No, Adam, um, he is not your fishing buddy. Uh, the Christ is here because you and Eve are going to make a really big mistake in the near future, and I made him so that he could be sacrificed so that all of humanity could be saved. Oh, okay. Faulty analogy over. 
<laughs> My point is that until Adam and Eve actually sinned, there was no reason to have the Christ show up. Until they sinned, their view of God was probably limited to the walking, talking pillar of light. After the fall, Adam and Eve were given the promise of the Christ. Yet we are clearly told that the Christ existed since the very beginning of creation as the Word. Yes, he did not become flesh until shortly after Gabriel made the trip to Nazareth, but the Christ existed as the Word since the beginning. Jesus is the same substance as God. In the beginning was the Word. John explains it for us in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. He that committeth sin is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For his purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Jesus was manifested to fix a problem? After Adam and Eve and Satan sinned, God promised Eve and Satan that her seed would one day deal with Satan. The prophecy of the Christ began on that day in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve fled the garden, but what did Satan do? Drumroll! Let's look at Revelation 12. Again, it is my belief that Revelation 12 is a flashback. It is a full explanation for why the Son of God was manifested. Did Jesus come to die on the cross? Yes. Did Jesus sacrifice himself as a lamb for us? Yes. Did Jesus come to gather up all the righteous people from the Old Testament so that they could go to heaven instead of being stuck in shale? Yes. Did Jesus come so that everyone who believes in him since his creation could go to heaven? Yes. Yet 1 John 3.8 seems to indicate something else. It's not just business, it's personal. Remember how Jesus mentioned Satan as a murderer since the beginning? Remember how Jesus saw Satan fall? Remember his reference to war in heaven? I believe Revelation 12 explains what happened to Satan immediately after the expulsion from the Garden of Eden. On earth, Adam and Eve were walking off in those fur outfits, crying and sniffling. We'll get back to them later. But Satan is ticked, like super ticked. Granted, he might have been angry prior to this. At some point in time, is there a clock ticking before this? Uh, Satan was consumed by darkness and jealousy about Adam and Eve until the jerk showed up at the tree in the guise of the serpent. Um, I really picture a cool looking dragon, but to each their own. Um, for Eve to trust him, he obviously belonged in the garden. See Ezekiel 28, 13. Yet tricking Adam and Eve into eating the apple is not the same as attempted murder. Okay, section A, the woman. Revelation 12, 1 through 2. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Who is that? Eve? The Virgin Mary? Israel? Christianity? Again, the beauty of prophecy is that it can mean multiple things. These first two lines have been widely interpreted. But what if this image is shown to John to represent the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is a man? Well, let's leave gender out of it for a bit. 
Let's look at the images we do have. We have light, big light, epic sun and moon-sized light. Did Eve stand on the sun? Mary? We also have 12. So from the 12 tribes of Israel came Jesus? Perhaps. Or the reason we have 12 tribes and 12 disciples is to honor and symbolize this woman being described here. When Adam and Eve sinned, all of creation must have groaned. All of creation changed. This labor is quite symbolic for what happened to our world. Up in heaven, something else also happened. Christ appeared. Again, Christ was always there. He was there as part of God's substance before day one. He probably entered into the universe on day one as the creative force that made all things. But on day seven, he had not been manifested, even though he was there. Each day after that, he was not seen, but was still there. On the day Adam and Eve ate the fruit, the word spoke. The Christ entered the universe. Was the Christ born? Well, Jesus was born, but existed prior to taking on flesh. The Christ is the same substance as God. But as the Holy Spirit was different than God by being in the universe, as opposed to the clay outside of the universe that was unseen and God, Jesus became even more tangible than the Holy Spirit, who is really big. Jesus is a small piece of clay. Does that mean he is less than God? No. The little piece of clay that is Jesus has always been God and always will be God. But I believe Revelation 12 describes how he and his prophecy entered the universe right after the words were spoken in the garden. Section B, the child. Revelation chapter 12, verses 3 through 5. And there appeared another wonder in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. And the tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the ground. And the dragon stood off before the woman, which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God into his throne. A lot of stuff just happened in those two verses, huh? Let's start with the child. It never explicitly says that Jesus equals child in this section. But there's a lot of cross-references with the rod of iron phrase. Uh, Revelation 19.15, Revelation 2.27, Psalm 2.9, Isaiah 30 verse 14, uh, that give translators enough confidence to capitalize the child as Jesus the Christ. Who else could be taken to the throne of God to hang out until his time comes? Of all the weird concepts in chapter 12, this is a fairly solid point. Okay, so if it is the Christ, what exactly is happening here? To paraphrase the whole context, it seems Satan is waiting to kill the Christ as soon as he makes an appearance. The word birth is a bit perplexing. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, so it almost implies that this is Satan waiting in Bethlehem to eat Jesus. The concept works, Herod, but the narrative falls apart after this. Could the woman be Mary and the wilderness be Egypt? Yes, 
But the previous section about Mary standing on the sun gets weird. Um, it will also make the following section about the war problematic. In isolation, an argument could be made. But if you back up to the part about the dragon, the context of when this happens is strange. The dragon's tail throws a third of the stars of heaven. My assumption is that God, the maker of the universe, understood basic astronomy when this prophecy was given to John. Even with hyperbole, a third of the stars of heaven would be the worst asteroid and meteorological disaster ever. <laughs> there were a lot of uh, neutral historians in different continents at the time of Jesus being born in Bethlehem that describe some strange signs, but nothing close to this. So let's forget about this being astronomical. I'm going to get into a discussion of angel equals star in a later episode. So right now, let's just go with a widely viewed assumption that this verse described the fallen angels. What caused them to fall? Satan. In Hebrew lore, Satan rallies many of his friends to his cause. Imagine the mindset, if possible, of Satan following the expulsion from the garden. He tried successfully to prove humans were not worthy, yet he ended up getting a prophecy that seemed to threaten his life as well as losing his position. So he complains to his friends about the injustice of it all. Who is his enemy? Who does he need to be afraid of? As soon as the word is spoken about the seed of Eve being Satan's punisher, it was on. Now, that Christ would not show up for thousands of years in the form of baby Jesus in a manger, and he tried to kill that baby too. But for the first time, we had the need of a Christ. If Elohim only existed in two distinct forms, God beyond the creation and the Holy Spirit within his creation, Satan knew what to watch. So my crazy theory is that these verses describe how Satan tried to destroy the Christ prophecy by trying to murder the Christ as soon as it, as soon as he became distinct. Remember how Jesus referenced Satan as a murderer? Remember how John wrote, for this purpose, the Christ was manifested? As Elohim, the word was there from the beginning, but it was after the fall of Adam, Eve, and Satan that his complex purpose was needed. So St. John, John the Evangelist, John the Disciple, James's little brother, you know, the beloved disciple, gets a glimpse into the backstory of Jesus and Satan never really seen before. The book of Revelation is not only the end of the human story, but it is also the end of Satan's story. A little later in Revelation, verse 9, it clearly explains that the red dragon is Satan. I could write a whole chapter on dragon-serpent references, but in this episode about Christmas, um, I'll avoid it. Uh, I'll save that for another day. Um, but Revelation 12 explains what happened back in the day so that, I don't know, we can understand why and what it has in store for the red dragon at the end. All right, section C, the sanctuary, Revelation 12, 6. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared by God, of God, that they should feed her there a thousand, two hundred, and three scored days. 
A few thoughts have gone through my mind on this verse. If the woman is Mary, then this is the trip to Egypt. I also imagine Mount Horeb. I also imagine the place, or the same place, where Jesus went to face the temptations of Satan. Uh, He was tended by angels after it was done. I cannot dismiss any of these, but my theory is that the woman is the Holy Spirit, and that all of this is flashback. So I'll explain what I think is showing under those pretenses. Before I explain what I think is going on with the woman, the Holy Spirit, I need to get back to the child, the Christ. Verse 5 talks about how the Christ was taken to God and his throne. Why? Well, because Satan was planning on murdering the Christ. If Satan was on earth with a third of his angels, the Garden or Mount Armon, um, making plans to kill Christ, heaven was a safe place for him. I know a lot of people are very fond of Psalm 91, but I like to think Moses wrote it as a love song to his Savior. I read it as Moses understanding that the pre-incarnate Christ has visited him during those 40 years in the wilderness to give him the words, or words, uh, that will be used by the word, Jesus, when he comes in the flesh. Remember, Satan quotes this psalm as if it is some sort of rule book or guidebook for the Christ. In the wilderness, Jesus rebukes Satan's temptations with the words of Moses. So if this is a psalm about Christ, then he that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I think Moses understands that Jesus was kept in a secret hiding place until he came to earth as baby Jesus. So if there is a hiding place for Jesus, I think the woman, Holy Spirit, is also kept safe from Satan. Again, if Elohim enters into his own creation, I see that as the light of the Holy Spirit. When the war breaks out, the Holy Spirit would have been in the universe, if not in the garden. Where is the wilderness then? Big question. It could be someplace on earth, or it could be out in the outer recesses of the universe. The curious word used in about half of the 20 English translations I looked at was they nourished her. The only reference possible for this pronoun happens to be stars. Could the two-thirds of the remaining angels rally behind the woman, the Holy Spirit? The Christ just vanished, so who is Satan able to war against? Before I get to the war, I think it's important to look at the time mentioned, 1,260 days. That is pretty specific. Daniel brings up some very similar lines during his end times prophecy. Later in Revelation, the two witnesses will prophesy in Jerusalem for exactly 1,260 days. Add those days up and they equal about three and a half years, which seems to be about the same time time times and half a time could also be seen as time equals one year and thus three and a half years or this is symbolic and nebulous why such specific times i think for john and us to understand god's symbolic times that will be used in the end times we need to understand what happened way back in the beginning in other words god is going to honor what happened in the beginning by repeating it again in the end. 
So Satan leaves the garden, and then what? How long does it take to rally the angels? How long does he organize? How long does he have to search for the woman? How long until we have angel versus angel? This 1,260 days and time times and half a time could be overlaid or butted against each other. My point is that it is a history lesson about the length of this conflict from antiquity. Section D, the war. Revelation 12, 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out unto the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. As an English teacher, those adjective and a positive clauses and phrases uh, drove me nuts, but John just wanted to clarify uh, that he, what he saw, um, was all about Satan. But it is when that interests me. Luke 10.18 is the verse where Jesus references that he was there from the beginning and saw Satan fall from heaven as lightning. So our section D seems to be history. Certainly, Satan was trying to take heaven again, and this is a double-veiled prophecy concerning the past and the future. But let's analyze it as a flashback. Jesus seems to confirm Satan's fall as history. If Satan could not find the woman, the Holy Spirit, then he would take the fight to heaven, where Michael and his angels were protecting the child. Did it take them 1,259 days of fighting to get to this point? Was the war waged on both heaven and earth? It doesn't really say. We just know what happened. Satan got his head busted. In Luke 10:18, I think Jesus plays it coy. Satan was in heaven. Strategically, this war was almost over if he had reached heaven and or the throne. Who threw him out? Michael. Psalm 74 talks poetically about the broken heads of Leviathan. Isaiah 27 and 51 also mentioned it. Job 41 talks about Leviathan as the king of the children of pride. We just heard John talk about Satan as a dragon. In Revelation 13, we hear about the dragon having a wounded head. When did he get this wounded head? We need to double back to Genesis 3.15 prophecy. And I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Juxtaposing these two chapters makes you question the woman definition. So let's look at the order of the wounding. Notice how Jesus first bruises the head of Satan. Then Satan will bruise Jesus' heel. I think this is the reason why Psalms and Isaiah mention it prior to the Easter story actually happening. Satan and company didn't get their butts kicked. They got their heads kicked by the Christ. Section E, how the war was won. Revelation chapter 12, 10 through 12. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, 
And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto death. Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. For the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. Still a flashback. For years, I hastily read past this section just because it seems to be a big, long celebration. The war was over. Hooray! Now, first of all, let's look at who is celebrating. Not God, not the Christ. The only obvious choice is Michael and or the angels. They are celebrating Satan's defeat. Now, remember that they'd been fighting him for 1,260 days, night and day, before the war ended. They were happy it was over. But more importantly, they were happy with how it ended. This part is really strange. At the beginning of this chapter, I listed a bunch of Old Testament celebrities who seemed to get it. The promise of the Christ was handed down through these generations because they seemed to show or earn it. The angel mentioned brethren or brothers or buddies in this verse. Remember, it was Satan who accused humans of not being worthy. And then a war broke out. From what I can tell, Adam and Eve were the only humans mentioned in early Genesis. So the accuser of our brethren becomes literally the accuser of Adam and Eve, or symbolically, the accuser of humanity. Humanity is on the line when Satan smashed in the doors of heaven to kill the Christ, who changed the status quo. Yes, the power of his Christ is credited for Satan's defeat. But the parts after it intrigue me. After 1,260 days, what suddenly turned the tide of war? Adam and Eve. Imagine the guilt of Adam and Eve as not only their status quo changes, but so too does all of creation. Now toss in a war. While they hunker down for three and a half years, they must have been filled with regret, anger, loss, more anger, and as is the case with most humans, denial of responsibility. And the war raged on. Think about how you wrestle with your own sins. Now try to imagine how Adam and Eve struggled during those 1,260 days. Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent. As the only humans, they could have gone to their graves bitter and angry, which explains the line, they did not love their lives to the death. Adam and Eve could have refused to pass it on by not having children. Adam and Eve could have refused to pass it on by not believing the prophecy of fixing it, which is the prophecy of the coming Christ. So the war raged on. But at some time during those terrible early days, Adam and Eve came to a realization. They stopped feeling and found their faith. They overcame Satan. They believed in the quote, blood of the lamb. They were responsible for helping to win the war by their testimony. These two fallen humans 
were reborn in a way. They might have been filled with the Holy Spirit. Just like the sinner King David fought through all of his vices to believe in the coming Christ, so too did Adam and Eve. And Satan got kicked in the head. This angelic celebration quickly turned into a warning. Section F, the warning. Revelation chapter 12, 13 through 17. And when the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she is nourished for a time, and times, and half a time, from the face of the serpent. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth, and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God, and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So Satan spit at her? Jerk move, if you ask me. In fact, this section gets so epic and hyperbolic, it is hard to understand why it is even happening. Did Satan just try to destroy all life on the planet? Did this bully just try to murder Adam and Eve also? If light equals life and life equals the Holy Spirit, I think Satan tried to use his powers to return the planet back to the status quo of day one. Is this a prequel to the great flood of Noah? It is curious that Satan's powers were immediately thwarted by the planet itself. It is as if God reminded Satan uh, who wrote the physics book. You want to get paranormal, Satan? Snap, no more water. Satan was having a really bad day. In this section, You can also see a little more support on how I think the woman is an entity like the Holy Spirit. Neither Eve nor Mary sprouted wings and then flapped away to safety. This is also perplexing if it is Israel or the church. But if this is the Holy Spirit, then wings make sense. It would also make sense how Jesus promised the return of the Holy Spirit to Christians of the Pentecost. How could the Holy Spirit make a glorious appearance if it hadn't gone into the wilderness? Unable to destroy the Christ, who just kicked his head, or the woman, who just vanished, Satan was left to make war on the enlightened believers. The entirety of the Old Testament seems to be God-fearing believers getting hammered by Satan. Exhibit A, Job, Adam and Eve, Abraham, Moses, King David, and pick a prophet. They all did their part to keep the anachronistic testimony of Jesus Christ, which meant they did not love their lives to the death, but instead believed in the promise of his coming. You've been listening to Jason Lee Willis's podcast series, Examining Christmas. The music you've heard is from YouTube's audio library. 
I hope you can join me again for episode three. Merry, merry. Until we meet again, 